This episode of The Call Sheet is brought to you by Plot Devices, creators of the Story Clock Notebook. You've probably got a lot of cool story ideas because you are a genius, but turning your ideas into actual stories can be a frustrating and lonely process. That's why Plot Devices created the Story Clock Notebook. It's purpose-built for breaking and outlining stories using the simple method of visualizing your story like a clock. Whether you're writing a screenplay, blog post, or ransom note, learn more about how to make writing less gross at plotdevices.co. That's plotdevices.co. And get 20% off your first order with the code DIRECTOR20. episode of The Call Sheet. I'm your host, filmmaker AJ Wedding, examining my old call sheets for guests in the film and TV industry. Anyone who knows me knows that science fiction has been the cornerstone of my life. Today I have the honor and privilege of sitting down with a writer and showrunner from some amazing series, Mr. Sci-Fi himself, Mark Zickrey. Yeah, great great to be here, AJ. I'm, I'm thrilled. <laughs> this is uh, the pinnacle of my life. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm just, wow, I have low standards. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> Now, I'm not sure how long you've worn that moniker, but your career suggests mm. uh, a while. I mean, recently yeah. you were, James Cameron had you as a speaker on the docu-series of his, The uh, Story of Science yeah. Fiction. Yeah, and I'm now actually doing my own history of science fiction on my YouTube channel, Mr. Sci-Fi. The way, the way that came about was, you know, I've worked for all the major studios and networks, hundreds of hours of network TV, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, I was having lunch a couple of years ago with Glenn Mazzara, who was the showrunner on Walking Dead. Now he's doing The Dark Tower, the new TV show that's coming down the pike. And he said you know so much about science fiction, you should have your own YouTube channel. And, you know, I've been shooting Space Command, which is this enormous project that I'm also sure we'll talk about. But I, I loved the idea. Years ago, I was a commentator on Morning Edition on NPR while I was story editing TV shows. And the reason I did those commentaries was because I wanted something that I could do that would be simple and small and not take a lot of um, effort in post-production and blah, blah, blah. And so the idea of having my own YouTube channel where I could just talk about science fiction, TV shows, movies, books, anything I wanted to talk about, and also show scenes from Space Command, or, or now we've posted the first hour of the pilot. Um, it just seemed wonderful. And uh, Mr. Sci-Fi, the way that came about was when I was a kid, there was a an editor and writer and publisher named Forrest J. Ackerman. And he actually had a house full of, of movie and TV memorabilia from science fiction and horror movies. Uh, and it was open to the public for free. And I went there when I was a kid, and he edited a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland that was very um, influential in, in starting the careers of people like Steven Spielberg and Stephen King. They all read it when they were kids. And he also did a, a, a spin-off magazine called Spaceman, which didn't last very long, but I've got a lot of copies of that, of that magazine. And back in the early 50s, when hi-fi was popular, uh, high fidelity, he came up with the term sci-fi. And so he was known as Mr. Sci-Fi. And he's oh. he's gone now, but he was someone I, I really liked and we were friends. And so Mr. Sci-Fi is kind of a little tip of the hat to him. So so I'm I'm carrying on the uh, the mantle. That's amazing. That's so he is and he's known for coining that term? Yes, he is. Well, he and is now. and and people <laughs> and science fiction writers like Harlan Ellison, particularly Harlan, hated the term sci-fi, never used it. He wanted it to be called science fiction or speculative fiction, but sci-fi 
despite Harlan's concerns, uh, it became a very common phrase, including the sci-fi channel. So, <laughs> you know, that was how it went. But again, you know, these guys were there at the beginning of science fiction. I mean, uh, Forrest Ackerman grew up in the 1920s with amazing stories, and uh, and then he was instrumental in the career of uh, Ray Bradbury and many others. So, amazing guy. Wow. So that's a little bit about uh, your past early on, mm. but t tell us a little bit more about how you s decided to get into writing and decided to move to this crazy town. Yeah, well, I grew up in L.A., oh. so I, I was actually born in Santa Monica, then we emigrated to Los Angeles, and <laughs> uh, not not a long trip, and... Um, <laughs> Uh, so I grew up in L.A., and, and so I was surrounded by the studios, and that was very much part of my DNA. And, uh, you know, I, I, my parents divorced when I was three. I was raised by my mom in L.A. My dad raised a second, then the third, then a fourth family in Orange County. Wow. And uh, I was, uh, you know, like a latchkey kid, and I read comic books and science fiction novels and short stories voraciously, watched TV, went to the movies. So from, from as long as I can remember, I was just – and science fiction was uh, very appealing to me. Uh, and this is during the space race, so the newspapers were full, full of Mercury, then Gemini, then Apollo. And uh, this was very much, um, I mean, it was a great era for science fiction. And uh, Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and Star Trek, the original versions of all three, were what made me want to be a writer. And I noticed, I started noticing that the same writers were writing for all three shows. And also they were the writers writing the books and novels I was reading. People like Theodore Sturgeon and Harlan Ellison and Ray Bradbury, Richard Matheson, Charles Beaumont, etc., I knew I'd be an artist or a writer. I was also drawing and painting and sculpting. And so uh, I started going to science fiction conventions in my teens and meeting my heroes, those writers that I just named, uh, and D.C. Fontana and David Gerald, you know, all these wonderful writers. And uh, uh, and they became mentors, friends and mentors. And uh, when I was 19, I went to the Clarion Writers Workshop, which is the leading science fiction writing workshop in the country. And six famous science fiction writers would come live with the 25 students who were in the dorms at MSU, Michigan State University, yeah. and uh, and one per week. And one of them, Damon Knight, who was the writer who wrote To Serve Man, which was made into a classic Twilight Zone episode, he read a short story of mine and bought it for an anthology when I was 19. And mm -hmm. at the same time, I was an art student at UCLA. So I went back, finished my degree in painting, sculpture, and graphic arts. But by the time I got out of college, I knew I wanted to be a writer, producer, and television. But there were no classes in that. <laughs> so I um I wrote The Twilight Zone Companion to learn how to write and produce TV. And that book took five years to write, and it came out. It was an instant bestseller. It sold half a million copies, and it's still in print after all these years. I just came out with a new edition. But so I started that book when I was 22. And then a friend of mine was writing for animation. He asked me if I wanted to collaborate with him. And so I started writing animation as a way of breaking into television. So I wrote for Smurfs and He-Man and Super Friends and Real Ghostbusters and on and on, Space Ghost. And... Uh, uh, that got me into TV. And so I started writing TV when I was 22 or 23. And then I jumped over to live action with Captain Power and Star Trek Next Generation and DS Deep Space Nine and uh, Babylon 5 and on and on. So, so you're yeah. essentially responsible for my childhood as well. Yes. As most of the people I know. Yes, yes. So I, I, I bear a great uh, weight of guilt for that. But uh, <laughs> but what can you do? You know, I mean, you know. We're my, still here. Yeah, yeah. Well, someone once asked me back when I was writing animation, they said, do you... Uh, do you write for the child in the audience? And I said, no, I write for the child in myself. Mm. So if it entertained me, if it delighted me, if I found the jokes funny, then the audience would. And and I never condescended. I always brought my A game to everything I did, whether it was an episode of Smurfs or, you know, Babylon 5. Whatever <laughs> I was working on, I was I was swinging for the fences. And uh, so that's that. And I learned that from writers like Harlan Ellison and uh, Ted Sturgeon. You know, they were phenomenal, brilliant men. How many of those were, the, were those uh, done by filmation? 
Filmation did, um, they did uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. They did another show I wrote for called Black Star. Black I Star. I think, but then also I was writing for Hanna-Barbera and Ruby Spears and uh, Marvel, and which was just starting up in animation. And um, Deke was another company. And so, yes. so Pole Position and the Littles I wrote for Deke. Uh, Smurfs was Hanna-Barbera. Um, Filmation, interestingly enough, uh, they were very limited in terms of their animation. And I remember just a moment ago, I remembered a sign I saw on a, on a board there. Uh, like there was a cork board for like announcements and someone had put up uh, that um, he said, it said, doing good work around here is like wetting yourself in a brown suit. You get a warm feeling, but nobody notices. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was really, really fun. And uh <laughs> But you know, but again, it was great. It was great writing for animation. I learned um, all the things I would use in live action. I learned how to write for character voice. I learned how to write for. Um, I, I learned how to come up with stories and pitch them. I learned how to write to a page count. So, in other words, if they said the scripts, well, like for instance, half-hour animated scripts back then were fifty-five pages because you were breaking down every single shot. And that's also where my art background was enormously useful because in my head I could see the shots. And so I could say, you know, two shot, you know, Brainy Smurf and Papa Smurf or, you know, Gargamel or whomever. And, uh, you know, or then, then it goes to a three shot, all inclusive, back to close on Brainy, whatever, you know, and it was just second nature. And... um and then when I jumped over to live action, I mean, every every form has its own language and scripts change over the decades. So you have to keep up with what that language is. And uh, but I was very adept at it. And I was usually juggling assignments on multiple shows with multiple studios. And that, again, was the same when I was uh, writing live action later and, and on staff. So so you, you kind of bowled over the uh, the first part of uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is. You know, because you've you've done so much. I mean, your breadth of work is amazing. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Uh, but t tell me about the. You know, you sold your first short story when I was nineteen. When you were nineteen, yes. And then, how did you get your first assignment uh, in animation? Well, it was interesting. You know, because everything I've followed, I found in my career that when I follow my passion, things go well, and. Um, so I try not to do what I think should be done, you know, because that doesn't serve. And uh, so when I got back from Clarion after sending, selling my first short story, uh, there I was at UCLA in the art school. I was enrolled by mistake. It was a clerical error. I never applied to that major or the art school. I applied as an undeclared major in the College of Letter Sciences, and there was a mix-up in my uh, paperwork, and they accepted me as a painting, uh, sculpture, graphic arts major in the College of Fine Arts. You're supposed to meet with faculties. You're supposed to show a portfolio. It's hard to get into the art school. But since I'd been accepted, I figured that was the hand of fate, and I went. Now, fortunately, I knew how to paint and sculpt and draw. That was something that I was doing just for myself, so I had the skill set to do it. But and I was trying to decide whether to be an artist or a writer at that point, and um, but I came back from Clarion to finish my last two years of college, and Theodore Sturgeon, who was one of the great science fiction writers, wrote two great episodes of Star Trek. Um, he was teaching an adult education class at UCLA, and as an undergrad, I was forbidden from taking adult education classes. But I thought, well, screw that. You know, it's Theodore Sturgeon. So I took the class, and he became a mentor and a friend. And actually, my photo of him appears on two of his books as his author's photo. And uh, he had a teaching assistant because he had been teaching at Clarion, not the year I was there, but previously. And some I went in 75, and this young man named Michael Reeves went in 72. And, by the, and he was Ted's uh, teaching assistant in this class. And he was five years older than me, and he was all, he'd already broken into selling short stories and selling novels and writing for television and in animation. And so we became friends. And he said, 
I'm writing for Space Stars, which was a show featuring Space Coast. And he was writing all of them. And he said, would you like to write one with me? And I said, sure. And, and this is useful because sometimes if you know where you're going, it may not be the door that you thought you'd enter because I was never one of those animation devotees who uh, longed to write for animation. It was never one of my goals, but I saw that that was my way into television because there were only three networks at that point. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was not like it is now with all these infinity of channels. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said, sure. So we wrote one episode of Space Stars together and then Smurfs was just starting up. So we wrote one episode of Smurfs together and it was very obvious I could write on my own. And so then I started writing... Uh, solo and every now and then Michael and I would collaborate, but um, and generally we'd be writing. Sometimes we'd be writing an entire series. For instance, like on Black Star, I think he and I wrote all of them. On Pole Position, I think he and I wrote all of them. So I might write six. I think it was like it might be like a thirteen order. So I'd write six, he'd write six, and then we'd collaborate on the thirteenth. You know, and uh, but again, writing at a furious pace. We were, I mean you know, minimally I'd be writing one episode a week and sometimes I'd be writing more than one episode. There was one week where I wrote, when I was writing in live action, I wrote two scripts uh, for two different shows in one week and that was very hard. I was That was a three-month period where I wrote for nine shows. Uh, well, I think I wrote nine scripts for six different shows. This is live action. So those two scripts were one for Space Precinct and one for um, Forever Night and the way I did it was I, they were both outlined. And so I, I would write 10 pages of one in the morning, have lunch to clear my head, and then write 10 pages of the other one in the afternoon. I did that for six days straight. So at the end of six days, I had two 60-page scripts. And they both got shot. Oh, everything, I, Almost everything I've written has gotten shot. So That's incredible. That's yeah, incredible. it's nice. Most writers can't say that. No, say. most writers are sad, and their scripts are sitting in a drawer, <laughs> and they're maybe drinking too much and losing themselves in meaningless sex. You know, it's so sad. Tough. <laughs> Obviously, you uh, did a ton of animation work. Yes. And back then, it was like, you know, a season of animation was, what, like 60 episodes? I mean, they did it depended. Tons. It depended. Because if it was for the network, it might only be 13, 13 episodes, okay. half hours. But um, but if it was like, but but see, here's what happened. <sighs> okay, how do we? All right. I, I was mentioning to, um, my assistant, Angelique, and my Space Command star, Angelique, uh, same person, oh. goes in one door, comes out the other. But, um, like a superhero, Clark Kent and Superman. But um, but back in the early days of TV in the 50s, when you would watch a kid's show like Space Patrol, which is a great live action show I highly recommend, live, live science fiction show, I met the cast, they were wonderful. This is af years after it went off the air. But back then, kid shows, the, the stars of the show between the acts of the show would do commercials for the product and there was no line between the show and the product. So for instance, on Space Patrol, they'd be having an adventure and then in the commercial break, all of a sudden the hero would walk out from behind a curtain and say, hey kids, eat rice checks and send in two box tops and 25 cents and you'll get this cool rocket cockpit made of cardboard, you know. <laughs> and the FCC, there was an outcry against this and parents were saying, well, wait a minute, our kids are being uh, marketed unfairly. And because the kids would put up a big, uh, you know, a gashry for, you know, rice checks or wheat checks or something even worse. And, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, and so the FCC stepped in and said, OK, you cannot promote toys or cereals or any product to children on the show of which, you know, in other words, you cannot marry these two at the same time. So for many years when I was growing up, uh, there was no blending like that. 
But but then what happened was, and so the toy companies and the cereal companies were looking for ways, particularly the toy companies, were looking for ways to have the show be the product, but in a new way that got around the FCC regulations. So, so Filmation, because they were trying to keep costs low, uh, they would have stock footage. And we would have to write to the stock footage. So, for instance, when I was writing for, like, Blackstar, um, you'd have one physical motion per shot. You could not have a character go in a door or out, out of a door because that was too difficult to animate. <laughs> and you would use the same shots over and over again with a different background. So, that, so on Blackstar, which was about an astronaut who goes through a black hole and ends up on this planet where he becomes sort of this warrior, like John Carter of Mars, uh, he had these little miniature friends who were called Trobbits because this is when Lord of the Rings was popular. And <laughs> so they were called Trobbits because of Hobbits, right? This is years before the, the movies. But um, so Trobbits. And so there were seven of them. And so they had a shot of the Trobbits running toward camera. And half of them were looking scared and alternating. The other half were looking happy. And the reason was, because then you could use, use that shot of the, as, as them running from a monster or running toward a birthday cake. And... Uh, <laughs> So, and we'd have to use these shots over and over and over again. So finally, uh, CBS, I think it was, uh, said, we, we, you guys, we, we're not going to buy any more shows from you because this stuff is just crap. You know, I mean, the scripts weren't crap. I loved writing for Blackstar. It was really, really fun. But the fact that we were being so limited in terms of their animation, the networks, none of the, no, none of the three networks would buy from them, any, them anymore. So they thought, well, how do we keep in business? So they thought, aha, uh -huh, we'll form a collaboration with Mattel. Mattel will create a, a show, basically. They will create a line of toys that will make into a show, and then they can promote in a totally different way. And that's how he, how He-Man and the Masters of the Universe were born. It was to keep Filmation alive uh, as a company. Wow. And then He-Man and the Masters of the Universe became a huge hit. And even that, you still had some stock footage because you, yes. every time he does the right. Power of Grace. But, but, but not nearly as much because Mattel was footing the bill. Sure. And and then and it became a huge hit. Hmm. And um, and then so then they decided to do Captain Power and the Soldier of the, F of the Future, which was a live action show. And I was hired to develop that show. So I spent a year developing it. And then we did a season of it. But it was a it was million dollars per half hour, which was insanely expensive for that time. And uh, so, which they, by the way, I love that show. Yeah, well, and I remember the yeah. toys, and you right? Could, you could actually shoot the screen, but they didn't exactly the work, and that was the problem. And uh, so, the show we uh, did an hour, a uh, season of that show, and an entire season of scripts was commissioned for a second season that never got made. And though, and uh, I, I insisted that they hired Joe Straczynski as the story editor. They wanted to hire me, but I was doing features at the time, so I said, "Look, hire him. He's never done live action, but I'll guarantee him." And those two producers were Doug Netter and John Copeland, who we then went on to create Babylon Five, which, which was with, which is how I ended up writing for Babylon Five. So that's how. It, so there's all this connective tissue. So even back then, you were sort of a master collaborator, mm -hmm. because that's one thing that I haven't gotten to yet, which is. Anyone who moves to Los Angeles to be a part of this industry, as Angelique and I were just talking about, mm. uh, eventually you ask enough people, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I get into this industry? Yeah. Yes. Everybody ends up at the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. T tell us what the table is. Well, I'm very much in competition with the pimps who hang out at bus stations for poor innocents who want to be, um, you know, actresses. Uh, Thank so either you're winning. Them. Yeah, either I get them or they get them, <laughs> or maybe we both get them and they just kind of moonlight. But you know, it's uh, no, but seriously, it's only one night a week. Well, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it depends. Depends on on you know a lot of variables. But the thing is, no, but seriously, um, about 26 years ago, my friends in Hollywood. 
uh, you know, because I, I was very lucky. Most people don't don't break in at, at 22, you know, and, and they certainly don't get their first sale at 19. So I was very, very lucky. And um, But I saw how many of my friends were struggling and how many of the scripts weren't getting made and how many talented people were getting um, bummed out by Hollywood and leaving. because And when, when they had the talent, they should have gotten a career. And everyone, and Hollywood was so corrosive and so... Uh, such a difficult place to navigate and and they never tell you what the rules are but the rules are very specific but it's an unspoken language and so I am um, so rather than just complaining about Hollywood I thought well let's see if I can do something about it so I thought okay well what do I hate about Hollywood I hate the arrogance I hate the hierarchy of it I hate the fact that good people are kept out for no reason I hate the fact that it's so cynical there's a great filmmaker named John Sayles who once was in being interviewed and he said cynicism cynicism is cowardice and I agree with that a hundred percent and so so I thought okay if I were gonna create a roundtable what would I want it to be well what rules would I make and so the rules were Everyone is treated the same. If you're an Oscar winner or if you've just gotten off, you know, the bus from Keokuk or the train from, you know, wherever, you know, uh, from Guatemala, doesn't matter, you know, and uh, everyone's treated with equal respect. Secondly, we encourage, we, we help people make stuff. It's not about complaining that they won't let you do what you want. They won't give you your dream. It's not about them. It's about taking responsibility, but helping each other. Because the technology has changed. When I started, you needed to shoot 35 millimeter or 16. You needed a studio or a network or a major publisher to get out to millions of people. Um, and, and, and you had to edit on a flatbed, a moviola. And, and it cost millions of dollars to do anything except for writing a novel. But, you know, if you wanted TV or film, certainly you needed those, a studio and a network. Now none of that is true. The science fiction never never... Uh, predicted we would all have video cameras in our pockets. You know, and the internet allows us distribution and our laptops allow us uh, to edit and, and post. So the thing is, so I created this round table and everyone's treated the same. Everyone's, uh, and it's warm and it's authentic and it's not creepy and, and networky or Hollywoody. It's it's just like... Well, it's free. And it's free. It's that was also the other thing. Food. No strings. No strings. There's no... And that's why I didn't make it an organization. There's no dues and there's no, there's no speakers. It's basically we get together once a week at a restaurant in the valley and we... Um, and we have a room and we go around the table and there's 50 or 60 people and everyone has a few minutes to say what they're up to. Then we hook them up with um, whatever they need. And um, and it's and and so it's open to anyone who's in film, TV, books, whatever. And once you come to one meeting, you can get on the email and you can then reach out to all several thousand members. And we now have offshoots in New York, Dallas, Phoenix, Florida, Atlanta, New Mexico. Just kept growing. And because uh, it started with six people and all of them ultimately fell away except for me and I would sometimes come I, and I made it every week so people would never have to, every Thursday so people would not have to remember which Thursday if it's Thursday other than Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's we're on and uh, and how, how many years has it been? 26 Jeez. And but I knew I had I had to come I had to show up it was like I would be the connective tissue I would be the backbone of this group because if I didn't put in the time and commitment why should anyone else? and so sometimes I would come and it would, early in the early days it would just be me and I just sit at this big round table. It was originally a one round table. And people started calling it the, the it was, it started as a restaurant called Hamptons. So initially it was called the Hamptons Round Table. And then it just got shortened to the table, particularly when Hamptons closed. We had to find another restaurant. But but I've kept it going. And, and when I'm not there, my wife Elaine sometimes subs for me or we run it together. Or there's a, another table member named Howard who's a TV critic. And you you have to have it run by someone who is, you know, knows what they're doing. And sure, uh sure. But it's just thrived. and But again, I love the idea. Because I remember back 
you know, there are several um, phrases that people don't tend to use anymore. One is community. The other is citizenship. And they, they both were used when I was a kid. And the idea was that it wasn't just about you. It was about creating a community where you nurtured each other. And citizenship, it wasn't this right-wing idea. It was basically you have an obligation to the country you're part of to do something that's good for other people. It's not just about you. And that's when the Peace Corps was created by Kennedy and all that stuff. And people had that sense in the in the 60s particularly that that together you were stronger. And it wasn't about charging for everything. It wasn't about going to a store and buying things. It wasn't about going to the mall where they're looking for what will you buy. It was about the notion of something that has no strings where we're there for each other and you help each other. And That's what's so great about yeah. that thing because we – we, I made so many great friendships that I still have today yes, yes. there, and so many projects get propelled forward because now it's not, well, how do I do this? How do I get that? Like, everyone there is there to help you yes. because by helping you, they're helping themselves, and by helping, yes. you know, and, and it becomes this great, I think my first project I made within the first two years of being here right. in Hollywood because yeah. of the table. the table. Yeah, exactly. And But the other thing is you learn things, you'll hear, and all, and you never know who's going to have the piece of information you need. It could be someone who just literally arrived in town and they know I know about something on the internet or whatever. And so I, and, and again, I'm not a snob. I'm not, <laughs> you know, I mean, people are, are sometimes impressed by what I've done in my career, but I'm still learning and I'm still growing and, you know, and I'm building this empire, which I'm sure we'll talk about, But but it's like, if I talk to someone who's 19 and he knows about something I need to know about, or if he has a skill that I can collaborate with him, you know, that's fine. I'm not, you know, it's like, I'm, you know, I love the new model of doing things. I would never go back to where there were three networks and I had to shoot <laughs> on 35 to make an episode of Deep Space Nine or whatever. It's like, you know, I mean, I'm still working with Armin Shimmerman and a lot of my friends from those shows. But uh, I would I love shooting digitally. I, I mean, it used to be we had used to wait two days just to see our dailies, and because you didn't have video assist back then, you didn't know if you even got the shot you needed. Oh and if God. you didn't get the shot, you didn't have the shot. You were screwed, you know. And <laughs> so sometimes, if you look at the original Star Trek, every now and then, if you're watching it closely, there's a close up where if you look in the background, the actor's actually on a different set because they needed a shot that they didn't get and they drop in a shot thinking, well, people are going to watch his, him. Because back then you couldn't record shows. So they just went by like that, which is why the stuntmen look nothing like the actors. I mean, watching Star, the original Star Trek on a big screen TV is hilarious. And uh, there's, one, there's one episode of Star Trek, the original, Charlie X, where the Captain Kirk and the guest star, Robert Walker Jr., go into the turbo lift to go to the bridge. And when they come out on the bridge... Kirk is in a totally different uniform, and the reason is that that they sh they they for time they had to cut out a scene, and that scene's just gone. And because it was, you know, the modern, you know, back it was back then with film and all that, they couldn't. They just had, well, we'll just bite it, you know. We'll just we'll just you know the audience isn't going to recognize that. And you know now, of course, you do with with you know being able to stop the frame and say, wait a minute here. Right. But um. But you know. But again, they were constrained in ways we aren't anymore. Sure. Yeah. So cool stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. But um, people are welcome to come to my round table and they're welcome. My email is markzickery at gmail.com and my phone number is 323-363-1259. And anyone who wants to contact me is welcome and anyone's welcome to come to my round table. I, you know, recently there were some kids who put on Alien as their high school play in New Jersey. Oh, wow. And uh, it went viral. And, and Ridley Scott put up the money so they could put on another performance. <laughs> and I flew there and I went to that play because I thought... I'm going to spend the day talking to these kids and advising them. I'm going to continue ongoingly 
mentoring them because I thought they'll get a lot of promises and they'll fall through and I just want them to have a feeling of the good Hollywood, the Hollywood sure. that means what it says. And uh, and it was wonderful. I went there. Sigourney Weaver showed up as a surprise. It was amazing. But they built everything from scratch. The alien suit, the space suits, the, the um, space jockey, 15 feet long. Amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. And but But throughout the day when I was talking to them and advising them, I said, this is Hollywood. What you're doing is Hollywood. Hollywood is now the world. It's not just, you know, a physical location. It used to be that Hollywood was, like when back in the days of MGM and, you know, the 30s, whatever. Yes. But now anyone who's got a camera, anyone who has a dream, anyone who wants something to make something, you know, they can. I have my own YouTube channel, Mr. Sci-Fi. I mean, <laughs> I love that. I think it's hilarious. Well, and speaking of mentoring, I, I would say that there's probably... I don't know, thousands of people who would say that you were their mentor. I mean, I'm yeah. one of them for yeah. sure. It's and fun. I'm doing this podcast because it was suggested by yeah. you. Right. No, it's, <laughs> it's great, but absolutely. And I'm thrilled by that. And also, I don't ask any participation. Like, if you become a gazillionaire, you know, I mean, let me stay on your island periodically, you know, but, um, <laughs> you know, but, but again, but there's no. I think people rise to their best selves if you give them a place to do so, if you give them the opportunity to do so. I think people can rise to their worst selves, like not to mention certain presidents I might mention. But you know, <laughs> but but most people are kind of in the mid-range. And if there's an opportunity for them to become their worst selves, they will. And if they have an opportunity for them to become the best selves, they will. Most people are not Nazi skinheads, but but they might be encouraged to say things they shouldn't say or do things they shouldn't do. You know, when, when, when Trump was elected, I made it a point to be more kind everywhere I went. If someone was trying to get a parking space and there was garbage cans behind them and they were having trouble, I'd run across the street and move the cans. I would hold doors open for people. I would smile at people. If I, if I saw Muslims in a restaurant, I'd be friendly to them just, just to let them know they were part of America and that it wasn't just the nightmare. The dark side. America's always had two sides: the racist, evil side that was part of slavery, that was part of uh, putting all these other countries down and and killing people, and all that stuff is true. But also, there's the good America that is exemplified by what's on the Statue of Liberty, and I and that's my favorite poem in the world. Uh, you know, give me your tired, your poor, huddled masses yearning to breathe free. You know, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That's true. And my grandfather came here and everyone else in his family was exterminated by Hitler. And if, if my grandfather hadn't left his village and come to America, my mom would have been exterminated. My aunt mm. would have been exterminated. No one would have survived in all likelihood. And so this is not what's going on now at the border. This is not um, a uh, political theory to me. This is, this is very, very real. Well, that and, kindness you know, that you've shown to people, that mentorship that you've offered to all these people, Yes. It, I mean, everyone in this town knows your name. And, yes. And I think that was really helpful when the sort of crowdfunding yes. revolution happened because yes. you ended up uh, making a gazillion dollars. A yeah, gazillion. No, now I can go to your island. Yeah. Well, no. I, and again, you know, it's like money has never ruled me. Money has just been the thing that I can utilize to make the work that I want to make. Absolutely. And so when I was working for the studios and the networks, I was, uh, you know, for 20 years, I was pulling down six figures a year, even in animation. And, you know, I could work for three months a year and earn $100,000 in animation, which was astonishing. We're talking like 1980, wow. you know, so that was, you could live on that back then. And uh, <laughs> even in Los Angeles. And, um, but, but, 
my goal was to create work that would stand the test of time and that would, would mean something to people that might change people's lives, like Star Trek had changed my life, like Twilight Zone had in Outer Limits, that Harlan Ellison taught me. He wrote City on the Age of Forever, which is a great episode of the original Star Trek. He, uh, he said, you, you mustn't waste your audience's time. You have an opportunity. You're working in an art form that allows you to create something profound and truthful mm -hmm. that only you could have created. And I take that responsibility very seriously. Through my roundtable, I started hearing about crowdfunding. And, you know, I, I was very interested in what shows get made and what shows don't. Because a lot of my friends had written pilots, and many of them hadn't gotten made. George R. R. Martin wrote a great pilot called Doorways that was about parallel Earths. It was made the same year as Sliders, and Sliders was the show that got greenlit, and I was a producer on that show. But the better show was Doorways, and it should have gotten made. So... So I'm so I'm interested in, right now in my life, I'm interested in just making stuff. I have no interest in development, none. I don't need to be a, a, a toy of a studio executive, you know, a court jester. So, um, so you've so, essentially written your own ticket. Well, yes. I can, now, I can now make whatever I want to make via my audience, thanks to my audience. So I, um, uh, through the roundtable, because I mentor so many people, I heard about crowdfunding, and I'd never raised money before. And so I thought, well, let's see if I can. Because I had, I wanted, this is back when, a few years ago, when science fiction was very dystopic. And you had uh, Oblivion and Elysium and After Earth and Battlestar Galactica, which was a great show, but very dark. <laughs> and, and I wanted to create a show that would be like what Star Trek had been for me when I was a kid, which was a hopeful vision of the future that said we can reach across boundaries and barriers. We, we mustn't be afraid of each other. We can create a future worth living in and we must not give in to despair. And, but we have to reach across boundaries and boundaries and borders barriers with compassion. Compassion must be an active verb. It must not be something where we just feel it, but don't act on it. So I thought, well, uh, so I came up with Space Command, this space going show set 60. It basically starts 60 years from now and covers 150 years in the life of uh, four families. And and it deals with all these issues we've just been talking about. And uh, we get to, get to jump between the generations and see cause and effect. And it takes place initially in our solar system. And then as we develop faster than the light drive, we go out to the stars. And it's a really fun show. So I thought, well, I've, and, and I have many friends who are showrunners. And, you know, that's the executive producer who runs a network show. And many of them, when I came up with Space Command, several of them said, well, let's partner up and walk into a network and get a pilot deal. But I knew... That the, that the networks could then cut me off at script or cut me off at pilot and they would own it and no one would ever see it. And I didn't want that to be its fate or they could give me notes that would screw it up. So I said, well, let's see if I can raise money and shoot a pilot. And so I set a very modest target, $75,000 to raise in two months. And we raised that in three days <laughs> and we kept going. And in that initial campaign, we raised 221,000. And wow. since then, I've had four campaigns and I've had, and I've also started selling investment shares, so people can buy investment shares for seventy five hundred bucks each. They get a, a percentage of my producer's net profits on Space Command for the first four hours of the show, which is you know we've we're, we've shot two hours and forty minutes, and we're going to shoot the rest of the first four hours in October. And uh, and so I uh, by now, at this point I've raised one point two million dollars. Oh my gosh! And uh, and by the way. Uh, what I've seen looks incredible. Yeah, thanks. I, I, that's yeah. Well, it takes a lot of work because <laughs> well. So what we did was um, at that time uh, when I first raised the initial money, I was uh, writing a book with Guillermo del Toro, and uh, and he because I was nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula Awards, which are the two top awards uh, in science fiction. I'd done a Star Trek episode without a studio or a network starring George Takei, and it got nominated for the Hugo and Nebulas, the top awards in science fiction. No 
independent project had ever been nominated for that award, it was always studios and networks. So I was up against Pan's Labyrinth. I was up against Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> I was up against Doctor Who. And uh, and you can actually watch that entire Star Trek episode on, on Mr. Sci-Fi on my YouTube channel. That's and, World uh, and Not World, time. World Enough in Time. World, World Enough in time. time. And it introduced Christina Moses to television. And she'd only been doing stage. And now she's starring in A Million Little Things on ABC. Hmm. So, um, but the... Um, but yeah, so I, I did that, and uh, so I knew how to build a, a, a machine without a network or a studio, but when Guillermo was uh, nominated for those awards opposite me for Pan's Labyrinth, his publisher reached out to me and said, would you like to write a book with Guillermo del Toro? Now, I don't need to write another nonfiction book for the rest of my life, um, <laughs> but I want to learn, and the opportunity to learn from Guillermo del Toro was oh, sure. an amazing opportunity, and we met each other, and he had read The Twilight Zone Companion and was a fan of my work as well, and uh, so I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so we wrote the book. And then during that period, I won the Saturn Award for producing the Twilight Zone Blu-ray. I did 52 commentaries on it as well. And uh, so if you ever want to hear me talk for 30 hours by the Twilight Zone Blu-ray. <laughs> but um, but at the, at the uh, Saturn Awards, I saw this tall, thin man in this amazing Victorian jacket. So I went over to comment, comment, you know, th like compliment him on the, uh, the jacket. And he turned around and it was Doug Jones, who had played Pan in Pan's Labyrinth. And he subsequently has played the, the uh, creature in Shape of Water. He's now in Star Trek Discovery. And so I said, well, I'm writing a book with Guillermo. And, you know, and uh, so I took him to lunch a few days later. And I thought he was an amazing guy and had an amazing face, which you never got to see in any of these creature roles he was doing. So I said, look, I'm going to write a role for you. So I wrote a major role for him in Space Command. And so then... Uh, we went rented a warehouse after I raised the money, built spaceship sets, mm -hmm. and uh, <clears throat> um, shot the two-hour pilot with Doug Jones and Robert Picardo from Star Trek Voyager and Stargate Atlantis and Mira Furlan and Bill Mumy and Bruce Boxleitner from Babylon 5, which I'd written for, and um, and uh, Mike Harney, who was in Orange is the New Black, and he was a friend of mine. And I just I was sitting, I was having lunch with him at one point, and I looked at him, and I realized he looked sort of like a version of our hero, and, I, and he could play his father. And I said, you want to be in Space Command? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I can't pay your normal salary, your quote. And he said, oh, never mind about that. And so I was like, great. And <laughs> and for two of our leads, we had a worldwide um, talent search where anyone anywhere in the world could download the audition scenes, shoot their own audition, and be considered seriously for the two of the lead roles. Oh, wow. No one had ever done that. And so uh, so we got 7,000 inquiries, 1,200 videos, and we cast nine actors, including our two leads from that, oh, from those auditions. And... Uh, so, but the lovely thing is it gave me total freedom. So I wrote it, I cast it, I shot it. Now we're taking out the show to sell it, but I've written the first eight hours of the 12-hour first season. I've written the prequel, which we're doing as a graphic novel and a radio play. And the first novel's written and uh, by Maya Bonhoff, who's a Star Wars novelist. And, uh, and, we're, and I'm going to write all 12 hours within the next month or two, and we'll shoot all 12 hours. And uh, we're currently building an alien hibernation ship and we're building uh, creatures that will be inside that ship. And uh, it's it's super fun and super cool. And That's, that's uh, the dream. Yeah. And then based on the success of that, I'm creating the Showrunners Network where I'm creating six more shows with six major showrunners. And, uh, you know, Rock Neil Bannon is one of my partners. He created Farscape and Alienation and Sequest and Defiance. And he's currently executive producer on Evil on CBS. And Mark Fergus and his partner are creating one of the shows with me and that they are running and created The Expanse. And they also wrote Children of Men and Iron Man. And it's going to be six um, creative artists like that. And I sat down and generated 350 ideas for shows, which I share with my collaborators. And we decide what we want to make. 
and then we'll reach out to our audience, finance all six pilots into production, and shoot them, and then take it as a slate to the buyers. So you're lazy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm. I'm happier now than at any other point in my life because I'm able to do exactly what I want to do, and my audience believes in me, and that's mm. phenomenal. That I mean, to have someone, you know, believe that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, and then I mean, but <laughs> well, it's also Hollywood. But, but you know, it's that's well. There's something wonderful about not having to ask permission. Like for instance, when I was ten years old, and Star Trek was on the air, the original Star Trek. This is this is how different times were. When it aired the first time, I recorded it as a 10-year-old. I recorded it on reel-to-reel -reel audio tape in case it never aired again. <laughs> you could not record TV shows. You could not you could not watch them again. Yeah. They were on and then they were gone. And um, so my mom, I was being raised by a single mom, a divorcee, and she had all these odd boyfriends, retired spies and artists and so forth. And one of her boyfriends had been in the, in the Bowery Boys movies. He was one of the the regulars on that and he had his own TV show in the 50s he was a comedian and uh, he was my mom's boyfriend when I was a kid at one point and he said um, he knew I was a Star Trek fan and he said I have a surprise for you you know and he took me to an apartment and knocked on the door and Michelle Nichols opened the door and she was playing Uhura at the time <laughs> and she gave me her own copy of her own script signed to me Wow. And I was a very smart 10-year-old, and I said, do you have any more of these? <laughs> and she reached into her wastebasket, and there were five more scripts from five other episodes. Oh, my And gosh. I have those still in my collection. She gave me a signed photo of herself as Uhura, and she wrote me this amazing letter. I wrote her a thank you note, and she wrote back this amazing letter of encouragement. And a few weeks ago, I got to shoot a scene with Michelle Nichols for Space Command, and it, and it came full circle. And, and what little boy that's – I mean, what little boy wouldn't find that a dream come true? Uh. And Amazing. so, yeah. But again, you keep that, that child's heart. I'm, Ray Bradbury was a mentor of mine, and, and I'd go once a month to his house for over 10 years, and we'd just talk about life and art and career. And uh, at one point, he said, we were sitting opposite each other, and he said, I have a secret I want to tell you. And he motioned me forward, and I leaned forward, and he leaned forward, and he said, I'm 13 years old. And he, <laughs> I understood what he meant, and we both laughed because it was true. Inside, he was still that 13-year-old boy full of wonder, and that's what nurtured his art and so we absolutely understood each other even though at that time he was closing in on 90 wow. and you know so and i'm writing a book about him it's called my ray bradbury based on our our friendship that's so cool and you've mm -hmm. written other books as well and yeah the yeah magic time series, yeah I, my great. wife and, my wife and i wrote a spec to our pilot called magic time where all the machines in the world stop running and magic comes back it's sort of like tolkien but in a modern vein mm -hmm. and uh i sold this as a no as a trilogy of novels to Harper collins now we're coming back to tv where we're going to make it as a show Ooh. and uh so Christina Moses is going to be in that as well. And uh, it's going to be way fun. My friend Ian McCaig, who designed Darth Maul and Queen Amidala and Rocket Raccoon and uh, the villain in the most recent Avengers film and the Mark Ruffalo Hulk, Ian's one of the lead character designers in Hollywood. He's been my character designer on everything I've done for the last 25 years. Um, he was just saying, what's going on with Magic Time? I said, we're going to make it. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's wonderful. That's it's. I didn't know that it actually started as a series that you were trying to sell because it, yeah. I, whenever I read the books, I would think, God, this would make such a great TV show. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was a two hour spec pilot. We just recorded that script as a as an audio play, so it's uh, on Audible. You can actually listen to it. And Christina Moses and my friend Armin Shimmerman, who played Quark on Deep Space Nine and the Principal on Buffy, uh, they're I wrote roles for both of them, and uh, and they're you know they're going to be in it. So when we shoot it, but it was great to record the the radio play, but um. But that script was optioned eight times before I sold it as a novel. 
But again, my heroes, Rod Serling, Ray Bradbury, etc., Harlan, Ted Sturgeon, they were all writing TV and movies and books. So I grew up with that as kind of the, um, the equation. Mm. So I was not limited. I understood how one fed the other. Sure, you're you a know. storyteller. Yeah, but TV is my favorite medium. I love television. Um, it comes into people's homes. There's an intimacy to it. There's a it's, it's a big canvas. So you can tell a story in twelve hours or a hundred hours. You know, it's uh, it's just my natural my natural form. And but also now that I have total freedom, and that's why all these big showrunners want to work with me in, on the showrunners network because we don't have to ask permission at all. I can cast whoever I want. Like, I, I, uh, Sweet Haven is a series that Rock and I are creating, and the notion is there's a, a, a bioengineered disease that gets out of hand. It kills everyone in the world under 60. <laughs> and so the only people left uh, alive are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and hundreds. And they have a limited time to save humanity, very limited time, <laughs> and they can't reproduce. And so how do you save humanity? Oh and But allows you to use actors who are wonderful. Like, you know, fat people and, and old people are the only stereotypes now that you can still laugh at. And even fat people, are, it's, it's more and more taboo. But old people are endlessly playing people coming down with Alzheimer's, people coming down with cancer, or the funny grandma or grandpa you can laugh at. And it's like, I want to give them back the dignity of being human beings. I want to give them back the dignity because when you meet real senior citizens, they're incredibly active. They're not this, this stereotype. Well, and he, like you said, some of the best actors yeah. are in that. Well, I was just talking to George Takei because I've worked with him before on that Star Trek episode. And I, well, I ran into Brad, his husband slash manager, when he was signing, uh, when George was signing at Comic-Con because we had a panel and a signing and a booth and all sorts of stuff. And I said, in, in drama, has George ever played a gay man? And Brad said, no, but he would love to. So then I talked to George and I said, listen, I want to write a role for you as a gay man. And he said, great. And so I'm going to write a role for him in Sweet Haven uh, where he plays a gay man who's lost his younger partner to the disease. And he's grieving over that. And it's going to be an amazing role. And I don't have to ask anyone permission. Mike, mm -hmm. Mike Harney is going to star in Sweet Haven. He's on Orange is the New Black and he's in Space Command and Project Blue Book and A Star is Born. I just met with him recently and I said, you're going to play this character. And I described the character and he was thrilled. <laughs> None of this is about money. The only time I ever talk to an agent is when we're scheduling when the actor is going to be shooting with me. And they understand. It's it's it, the the... the uh, corollary is, is is indie theater more than film or TV. It's like let's get together and let's let's make something wonderful. Sure. And we don't have the millions and millions of dollars that a studio or a network would have, but we have talent and we have commitment, and we well, you have an audience and you yes. can go direct to them. Yes. You don't well, need all that well, I posted the I posted the first hour of of uh, Space Command on Mr. Sci-Fi where anyone can watch it, and we've got 91 percent thumbs up. I don't know of a TV show that's getting that, you know, and uh, and that's and if we get like over a million views on that pilot, that's significant to the buyers. Oh sure. But when the when the networks and VOD platforms wake up and start buying shows from me, which they will do, um, <laughs> I'm still I'm shooting nonetheless because my audience will finance me. Absolutely. And uh, and that's separate from the project we're doing in England, which is a mini series with someone in the House of Lords, and that's just another project we're doing that Lane's writing and we're producing, and, uh, you know, it's, it's super cool. Do you need a cup of coffee? <laughs> I drink iced tea. I mean, <laughs> I mean, how many hours do you sleep a night? Well, like, I, I get, I get enough sleep. I get enough sleep, but the main thing is that <laughs> Elaine and I go to the gym. My uh, wife and I go to the gym. We've had the same trainer for um, uh, 28 years. He looks fantastic. He looks like a, an Oscar. <laughs> but, um, but we're driven, and fortunately, our energies match. 
And so it's not like Elaine saying, why can't you, you know, take me out to the, you know, the botanical garden or whatever. It's like, you know, no, we're, she's writing her miniseries. I'm writing Space Command. She's directing it and writing it and producing it with me. I mean, you know, it's a box of toys. It's fun. It's amazing. Yeah. At one point I took a cast with my, a photo with my cast on the set of Space Command. And I said, here I am with my life-size action figures. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's gotta be so much fun. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, uh, kind of going back to uh, television and how it's changed over the years, because yes. you've been a part of it for yes. a long time, mm-hmm. you once uh, explained how we went from having television that was very much, you watch your half hour, you're in and you're out, mm-hmm. and if you miss one, you're, yes. you're fine, and now how we have these like longer stories, and yeah. why that is. The yes. Way it is. Um, well, I'm, I'm actually writing a memoir called My, My Televised Life. Because I was the first generation of TV kids that grew up with, with television rather than radio. Elaine, interestingly enough, her, her, her parents got television very late in life. So she remembers the Lone Ranger from radio, and I remember the Lone Ranger from television. So that's really interesting. And uh, when I was a kid, you watched a show when it was on. And shows would be on the three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, and that they were the makers of television. And then... After they ran on the air, or, or sometimes while they were still running on the major networks, they would then be syndicated, and they, those shows would then show in the afternoons or whatever. So I, so when I was a kid, particularly when I was a little kid, like five, I would be after school, I'd be in daycare until my mom would pick me up, and they had a TV set, and I, everyone else had gone home, so I would sit watching this TV set, and it was like Sup- The Adventures of Superman, and it was Highway Patrol, and you know, so I got to watch all these shows, and they were like your family. Because for one thing, an actor who would be on Gunsmoke one week might be on McHale's Navy or Bewitched or, you know, I Dream of Jeannie the Next. I mean, there were, you saw a limited number of actors and they were, again, so, so it was like amazing. Like when I interviewed Anne Francis uh, for The Twilight Zone Companion or Billy Mooney for that matter or any of them, these were like, like I'd grown up watching their shows and, and movies. But then uh, video recorders came out when I was, you know, in my 20s and, uh, and all of a sudden you could record shows. Now, initially, when shows were aired and then syndicated, because they were syndicated out of order, every episode had to be interchangeable with every other episode. So, for instance, the first episode of Star Trek is identical to the last. Or in an episode, one episode, Kirk might fall in love with a girl and she dies and he's sad. But then the next episode, he's not talking about her. She falls, he falls in love with another girl and another girl, and, right? There's no building story. But then, when you got VHS, tapes for sale and rental but even more so when you got DVD. It became relevant that people would want to watch the entire season as one story. And so then making linked stories, arcing stories over a season or more than one season became something that was that increased sales in an ancillary market. And so then it became, so then the edict, now it started with artists who just wanted to create bigger stories. So Hill Street Blues did that, uh, Bochco, and then Joe, uh, Joe Straczynski was watching that, uh, you know, watching that show, and he decided to bring that into science fiction with Bab- Babylon 5. And, um, and, and but, the, but then all of a sudden the networks and studios and their home video arms started seeing the value of that, selling a season, a whole season. And uh, so then they started saying, well, let's have arcing stories. And so some shows might tell one story within an hour, but they would build elements of that story over the season. But other, other shows, like Game of Thrones or whatever, would tell one big story. And that became common. 
and it's now the common thing. It's it's much more rare that you see a show where it's a beginning, middle, and end in that hour. Right. I mean, procedurals are still doing that, maybe like CSI or something, but the the heavyweight dramas aren't. You know, it's like Breaking Bad told one big story, yeah. and uh, you know, so and the rules have changed. Their television is much more sophisticated. You can move around in time in ways you couldn't previously, and people get it. You know, so it's it's great. It's a great era now. <laughs> it's true. But but the one difference, by the way, for those trying to break in, breaking in is harder now because back when I started freelance, there were many shows you could be a freelance writer. And like when I was on uh, producer on Sliders, we'd have writers come in to pitch every single day, which meant that there were hundreds of opportunities for a writer to potentially sell a script. Now that's all changed. Now it's all written in-house. So they might hire 10, 15, 20 writers to be the staff, but nobody else other than maybe a writer, writer's assistant who's given a, a, a script can break in much harder now and uh it's not and it's a very inefficient system i don't like i I prefer freelance the way it used to work where you'd have some writers on staff and some freelancers because it gave so many people an opportunity to break in and to to learn their craft well that's how ronald moore broke in too for star trek and right i was just thinking about him as you were talking because uh you had him at um, a showrunner event yes yes uh, something that he said which you know, for myself, trying to break into television directing. Yes. He said, you know, everybody is rooting for you, but nobody wants you to have your first episode be on their show. No, because it can be. <laughs> see, the, the thing is, a writer can screw up, and it's okay. You just rewrite the script. Yeah. If a director screws up, you are so screwed. Totally. Because they don't make their day, or they're not shooting where you've got the connective tissue to edit, or... Or their vision, quote unquote, is like, what the hell is that? They're shooting like people's hands and feet, but not the faces, you know, or whatever. It's like, oh, my God. And then, of course, you know, you have to hire a director to fix it. And then he's on triple time. And so you're paying him a fortune. It's just a a bloody nightmare. So, So it's a huge risk to take. Whereas with a writer or... You know, I mean, producers, some some producers not doing this job, you fire him, you know, right. and pay out his contract. But that's not that's not going to screw your show. Right. So, so that's the reason. But um, but again, you know, and, and TV directors are very different from film directors in that they are not the auteurs. The showrunners are the writer producers are. And um, that's why I gravitated to television because writers ran television, directors ran features. And, you know, so that, you know, again, it comes to an issue of power. Almost everything I've written, with a very few exceptions, has gotten shot. And it's gotten shot the way I wanted to get it shot. And what the audience saw is what I wrote, period. And that's lovely. That's amazing. You know, yeah. And I can stand by my body of work and be proud of it. And, uh, And people are watching stuff I wrote. 30 years ago they're, writing, they're watching stuff that I wrote when I was in my 20s you have become this sort of icon this voice for writers and for science fiction I mean yes. the fact that you were on that I mean it's so funny I didn't realize you were going to be on it but I was watching mm. that James Cameron science fiction yeah. on the show and you're just oh my gosh there's Mark like yeah you know well, well it's funny because when they first <laughs> called me to be on it, I was in South Africa researching the project we're doing uh, in England. It's because uh, Lord Peter Haynes, a peace activist, his parents were activists against apartheid. He grew up in that environment and was part of it. And uh, so we spent five weeks traveling the UK and South Africa interviewing the witnesses. So I'm sitting in a restaurant out, on a, uh, you know, out, outdoors in, in, I think, Johannesburg or uh, <laughs> Pretoria. What, what, what was it? It was somewhere in South Africa. And the phone rings and they say, well, uh, we want to interview you for the James Cameron's History of Science Fiction. When can you be in the in the studio? And I said, uh, 
well, this is when I'll be back in America. And um, <clears throat> so I got in just under the wire. But when they interviewed me, they said, God, you know so much about science fiction. I wish we'd been able to get you in earlier because we could have used you in a lot more episodes. And I said, well, yeah, you know. But then but then when I, when I realized what they were doing, I decided to do my own history of science fiction on Mr. Sci-Fi, the history of science fiction, novels, movies, TV shows, short stories, radio, etc. Because I realized that I wanted to do all the connective tissue and about the entire genre and they Not were leaving just the a, movies. There well, were sort of movies. It was kind of, well, it was like the directors were the celebrities on that show. It's like, okay, Cameron talks to Guillermo or whomever, and it's like or John Carpenter, but that's not really the whole history because unless you know what Jules Verne did, what H. G. Wells did, what, what Ray Bradbury did, you know, a lot of people are tending to f the, the the past uh slowly erases sure. or quickly sometimes. And and you don't know that oh Without these, that's why when I that's why I came up with Far Beyond the Stars for Deep Space Nine, where the characters go back to the fifties and they're science fiction writers. The actors are because I wanted to show where Star Trek, where Star Wars came from. These guys who were writing for a penny a word or five cents a word for Astounding and Galaxy Magazine and the Pulps, and they were writing for that because they loved it. Maybe they, they might get a thousand dollars for a novel if they were lucky from Gnome Press or Shasta, and and not, most of them. You know, they, they weren't well known. And now, of course, science fiction writers are huge. They're the top of the bestseller charts. They're the, the Martian get, you know, gets made into movie, a movie or, you know, it's like it's, it's a very different world for science fiction and fantasy and horror now than back then. But I wanted to pay tribute to guys like Ted Sturgeon, who when I knew him, he was this huge figure to me. But but he was living in this little teeny tiny apartment. It wasn't even an apartment. It was a converted laundry room. They had this this doorway where for like a, a Morlock or a Munchkin, it was like I hit my head on the top lintel of the doorway because it wasn't a human sized door. You know, but then you'd go into his, his apartment, quote unquote, and there'd be the Hugo Award, the Nebula Award, because oh he was this giant in science fiction, but no one would recognize him on the street. In fact, he was once at a at a bus station. He saw someone reading one of his novels, and he said as a joke to this kid, he said, oh, you shouldn't be, be reading that garbage. And the kid looked at the book and said, you're right, and threw it in the trash. <laughs> it's like, well, shouldn't have said that, Ted, you know. At least he already bought it. Mm, I guess. <laughs> I guess. But man, yeah, pretty hilarious. Well, this has been great sitting down with you. Yeah. Tell people, so Mr. Sci-Fi. Yes. So if is... you want to watch what I'm doing, if you want to see Space Command or the Star Trek episode with George K, or I post uh, at least once a week on science fiction, you go to Mr. Sci-Fi, S-C-I hyphen F-I, Mr. Sci-Fi uh, on YouTube. It's my YouTube channel. You can subscribe to it. You can friend me on Facebook or follow my Mark Zickery Twitter feed at Mark Zickery. Um, there's a Space Command TV, Space Command series on, on Instagram. And you can buy Space Command shares for 7500 bucks, and you can be part of this. Or you can, you know, um, there's a Patreon page for Mark Zickery. I mean, there's many, or you can come to the roundtable. It's every Thursday night. And, you know, you can email me at markzickery at gmail.com. You can be part of our world. Our world in, encompasses the world. And uh, everyone's part of my family. So it's, it's a thrilling time to be creative. <laughs> I hope uh, the audience is hearing a through line in the guests that we've had so far because... One of the things that I really wanted to do with this show is show that there are people in Hollywood that are like you, that are like, you know, yes. we're all collaborative. We all want to get things done. We want to make fun, creative projects. Yes. And uh, it's not all just negativity and, and closed doors. Well, the lovely part is that authenticity is appreciated now because in my life and in my, well, the first writer I ever saw in person was Ray Bradbury, someone who was 10. He spoke at a library and I sat on the carpet in front of the first row and he said, <laughs> And he said at that talk, he said, ideally, your life and your art and your work 
should all come from the, from the same place, should all come from the same place. And he pointed to his heart. And that was hugely um, inspiring to me. And I've tried to follow that, that advice. And uh, so I'm really glad I live in a time now where the audience can be um, in touch directly with me and can see that I have a love of everything I'm doing and that everything I say is what I mean. And uh, that's why I'm able to raise money. That's why I'm able to make Space Command. That's why I'm able to support a marriage that's gone on for 42 years. That's why I'm able to run the table because I mean what I say and I come from the heart. Incredible. Uh, thank you so much, Mark, for sitting down with me today. I appreciate the time. You're okay. welcome. You clearly don't have time to be here. You no, but it's been a joy. Do. No, no, this is this gives me time to sleep. I actually have painted eyes on my eyelids, and oh. I've been I've been talking in my sleep. But uh, fortunately, I'm able to be uh, semi-coherent. No, nice. Well, I appreciate it. But it's been great, AJ, and, and thanks. And I wish you all good things, and I wish your listeners all good things. That just about does it for this episode of the Call Sheet. I'm your host, AJ Wedding. You can follow me on Instagram for more information about the call sheet at that director AJ. See you next time.